0: So in Romans 9, we've been dealing with a, uh, two main topics uh, that Paul has been getting into. One is he was speaking about the, the nation of Israel, the rejection of Christ as the Messiah. And then he begins to explain what's going on, I guess you would say behind the curtain, because it could appear that either God's word is weak and is not effective and he says that's not the problem. Uh, and so he's allowing us to see the complexities of the plan of God. And what he's focusing on is the attribute of God, which is the one that some people have a problem with, which is God's sovereignty. In particular, most people don't have a problem with God being sovereign, they just haven't thought through what all that means. And so when it gets into what we call election or predestination as it deals with salvation. That's where there's a lot of uh, issues that we sometimes have. Uh, Remember that we got to the point to where as Paul would explain some things and then raise a question and explain some things and raise a question, he continues to answer the questions till he gets to a point to where he basically stops and says, who do you think you are? Questioning God. And the idea there is that There's several things that we need to remember, and we mentioned some of those things last week, and that is, when it comes to anything with with our understanding God and his ways, it is still finite creatures seeking to understand a being that is infinite. So we're always going to uh, fall short of being able to completely comprehend God. It's just never going to happen, because he's infinite. Now, that doesn't mean that we, that we cannot know more about God. It doesn't mean we cannot understand more about God. But also at the same time, remember, and this is where it gets kind of hairy, because God is an infinite being, technically you don't really gain any ground. All right? Because it's not like there's a thousand things to you know about God and now we know 500. So there's only 500 to go. Right? The idea is... is we say, well, I know there's at least a 1,000 things to know. And let's say you learn 700, but you would say, but there's still at least another 1,000 to go. Mm. And if you learn another 1,000, there's another... Th- I mean, it just goes on and on. Um, now, that's not to discourage us. Um, it is to cause us to recognize the majesty of God, You know how, how huge the, the gulf is between who we are as created beings and who he is. And all this discussion here that he's going into he really wants the the, the ones he's writing to, to take great comfort in the fact that God is sovereign. You know, that nothing happens by chance. That God really is in control of all these things. And that, again, God is merciful. And that God is gracious and kind. Uh, that's the side that we're going to come down on uh, when it comes to his dealings with Israel, with Gentiles, uh, basically with Unbelievers and how it is that we come to faith in Jesus Christ, and how God enacts all those things. So, if you would look, I'll begin reading once again in verse 19, though we covered that, um, and then we'll move on because he's going to swing it back to uh, helping us to understand what all, how all this plays into Israel and basically Israel's future. So, in verse 19, he says, "You will say to me, therefore." Why, then, does he still find fault, or who can resist his will? But who are you, a mere man to talk back to God? Will what is formed say to the one who formed it, Why did you make me like this? Or has the potter no right over the clay, to make from the same lump one piece of pottery for honor and another for dishonor? And what if God, desiring to display his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience objects of wrath ready for destruction and what if he did this to make known the riches of his glory on objects of mercy that he prepared beforehand for glory on us the ones he also called not only from the jews but also for the gentiles so go back to the beginning of 22 all right so he's asking a hypothetical question to a degree he says what if god Desiring to display his wrath and to make his power known, all right. So that's that's God's goal here is to, is to make sure that he can reveal that to to humanity. So the way he's going to do that, according to verse twenty-two, is they're objects of wrath. These are non-believers, and he enduring there is basically he puts up with them, all right. And where there's been a lot of dis- uh, a lot of discussion through the years, it says ready for destruction. So. The conversations that a lot of theologians have had about that into that verse is because i think in some translations it says fitted for destruction that they are prepared yeah prepared that's the same thing okay. and so um so the the it's not really i guess it is an argument um when i say argument that doesn't mean that they're mad at each other but the idea is trying to figure it out so the the uh the subject they've been dealing with is So who prepares them for destruction? Is it God or is it them? And because there's a lot that hinges on that theologically. And so there's arguments on both sides. Uh, And they get into the language. Both sides get into the language. Um, And you have Greek scholars on both sides. And they go through all the rules and all that. In the end, they still come out on these two sides where God is the one who's prepared them for destruction, and that kind of leads us to think that those individuals uh, were, um, it's almost as if God had chosen them from the beginning, that they would be born, that they would never get saved, and he was simply going to use these unbelievers so that when he judged them, the world would see his power. On the other side of the argument is that, no, these individuals had fitted themselves for destruction. In other words, the idea is, as we know, as he's already told us in Romans, every single person sins. And we're all guilty of committing sin. And we're all going to be punished for our sins. The only reason the believer himself is not punished for sin is because Christ is our substitute. So our sins is still punished. Remember, no, there's no sin that goes unpunished. All sin will be punished. And we escape that judgment because Christ took our place. And so the argument then that, that is made uh, for those individuals is no, uh, it is not the case where, where God uh, chose these people to be born and chose to never save them. They fitted themselves because they sinned. Well, you don't want to be, dog- I don't think we should be dogmatic on either side of those because still, if you look at both those things or both of those ideas, both are taught in the Bible. It's, 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 it's all there. Um, and man is never absolved of his responsibility for his sin. It's right? that's, that's always that way. Man sinning is never God's fault. God's, you know, God is not, he never makes us sin. Um, and so God is not guilty of evil in that way. So there's, there's clarity but non-clarity. I think partly because... Maybe it's because we're Americans, to a degree. We're not the only ones who do this, but we're, we're the primary ones. You know, we, we, want, we, want that, we want that pat answer. So we can, again, t- put it in a box, tie it up. It's nice and neat, and there's, there's no other questions. Uh, but Paul has been dealing with, as I mentioned to you last week, in one sense, a, a very, uh, uh, it's a, he has a very high view of God, that God is completely different than we are in every way. That God is to be feared. But again, remember that that's always um, explained to us. We're in the same breath. God is always shown as being merciful and kind. And that's what's, that's what's important here. So God is not this. He's not a fire-breathing dragon. Uh, we know from Ezekiel 18, where it says clearly that God um, does not take pleasure when the wicked die he's not happy about that we know that God desires that all men will be saved and if you want to make it even more complicated there's still there's still another problem well it's not another problem it's just same problem looked at from a different angle and that is this so the individual who objects that somehow it's unfair that these individuals aren't saved and God is using them to display his wrath which again He's already said that the potter can do whatever he wants with the clay and he's done nothing wrong. But we could, we could look at it in this way. We know that God knows everything. So if God, if God knows, so let's just use Sanja as an example. So if God knows that Sanja, it's what, you sit in the front, that's what happens. So, so if God knows Sanja is going to be born and he knows she's going to hear the gospel 900 times, In her lifetime. But he also knows that she will reject Christ all 900 times. And he allows her to be born anyway. What's the difference? In the end, there's no difference. The individual is condemning themselves because of their sin. We know that God has the ability and the power to save everyone. No matter what an individual's theology is, what we do know is that God doesn't save everyone. It's never because God is weak, because God is all-powerful. It's never because God is not loving, because God is loving, and he's also just. We don't have the mind of God on that. And so we, uh, when, when we get saved, what we're really doing is we throw ourselves in the mercy of God, and we know from the Bible that the Scripture says that if you come to God with a broken and contrite heart, he will what? He will never turn you away. And so even though there's, in a sense, this dilemma in our mind as we try to wrap our minds around this, which can be very difficult, as I mentioned before, we want to make sure that we're careful never to diminish who God is. We can diminish who man is, but we can never diminish who God is. And there will be some things that we um, accept even though we don't fully understand them. And that's true of other things. We, we, you know, the most common example is the Trinity. You know, we understand a great deal about the Trinity, but there's no one who comprehends the Trinity. We believe in the Trinity because the Bible clearly teaches that, but there is no one who says, "Oh yeah, I got a handle on that." I mean, there's—I've not read one academic or one, some of the best pastors in the world, can explain it really well, and they can talk about it for hours, but they don't have a full comprehension. So God is always bigger than we are. He is far beyond us. And again, the best news is that he is gracious and kind and that he saves, uh, saves us and all of us are undeserving of God's salvation. So God's love and God's power, uh, God's uh, um, uh, judgment, none of those things really come into question with all of this. There's just things that are difficult to grasp. Um, if someone was to ask, a few people ask this question, many don't, but a few people ask the question so, how do I know if I have been elected or predestined to be saved? And the answer is believe in the Lord Jesus Christ with all your heart, mind, and soul, and you'll be saved. That's the answer. Period. And if you do that, you'll be saved when you do that, then you can say, I'm one of God's elect. <laughs> you know, there's a uh, Charles Spurgeon uh, was a tremendous preacher, and, and there's a very famous illustration that he gave about this. And he said that, when you looked at salvation, it's kind of like a man approaches this, this large gate, and on the gate to heaven, it basically says, uh, on the archway, whosoever will may come. And so, that's whoever. So you step through. If you turn around and look at the back of the arch, it says, predestined before the formation of the world. All right? So you know, it's, that's where that's at. Um, and uh, it's, it can be difficult to, again, there, there's like these two parallel truths that appear to be paradoxical. Or in other words, they appear to contradict themselves, but but they don't. Um, and so Paul, without you know, he's got no shame. He's not trying to hide anything. He's just explaining it straight out. And again, in this, the idea is that if, if God is going to show his power and his righteousness when he judges the wicked, he has a right to do that. He's done nothing wrong with that. And that's never happening to anyone who's ever innocent. That just doesn't take place. And then when he talks about those who um, are the objects of his mercy, which all of us who are believers were objects of God's mercy, um, and then he emphasizes it's not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles, because salvation is for all people, and it's always been that way throughout the entire Bible. So he quotes from Hosea. Hosea, um, and in verse 25, he says, as he also says in Hosea, I will call not my people my people, and she who is unloved, beloved. So when he says, I will call not my people my people, okay, that's us. Right? In other words, those who are not Jewish, because remember he called the nation of Israel, and the nation of Israel failed to fulfill its duty to God in revealing God to the world, and through their disobedience, there finally came a point in time when God put the nation to the side for a while. In other words, when it it comes to his plan uh, to bring the message of salvation to the world, the nation of Israel as a nation was pushed to the side and God created, in a sense, a new entity, which is the church. And so we then are the people who were not his people, not Jewish, but we became his people. And that was because of God's mercy and grace. That's what he's talking about. Verse 26, and it will be in the place where they were told, you are not my people. There, they will be called sons of the living God, which is that's what we are. We're sons of the living God. But Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of Israel's sons is like the sand of the sea, only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will execute his sentence completely and decisively on the earth. So basically, it's, it's like a, it's a prophecy there that's been, been, uh, that is recorded in Isaiah. And what he's basically saying is, is even though there is a, an incredibly large number of Jewish or Hebrew people, like the sand of the sea, a small number will be saved. A small number are going to believe in Christ, are going to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. All right, But he doesn't leave it with that. All right, Because you go on in verse 29, and just as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have become like Sodom, and we would have been made like Gomorrah. So all he's saying there is that if God had not spared the remnant, if God does not make that happen, then in the same way that Sodom and Gomorrah were completely wiped out, and all the inhabitants were wiped out, that's exactly what would have happened to Israel. But it won't, because of what God's doing. But there's doesn't end with that, because God's doing something special with what's taking place. And that's, uh, if you go on, he says this, what should we say then? Gentiles, that's, the, that's non-believers or, or pagans, who did not pursue righteousness have obtained righteousness, namely the righteousness that comes from faith. So he's already said before that there is no one who seeks God on their own. No one, no one has ever sought God. Uh, whenever an individual is seeking God, it's because God is working in their life. Right? That's, that's what's going on. So here he says, so he, so he characterizes non-Jewish people as a people who were not looking for righteousness. They were not looking for God's Righteousness. And he points out, oh, and by the way, they found it. And so when we get saved, we're familiar with some of the language that we use. My favorite illustration, again, is that we are dressed in the righteousness of Christ. So his righteousness becomes my righteousness. So I know for a fact I'm going to be allowed into heaven because I'm going to heaven based on the righteousness of Jesus. It's not on my, because I don't have any righteousness to bring. Right, so it's on his righteousness. So as he, so he's kind of backed up. He's looking at Gentiles as a whole compared to the nation of Israel as a whole and says uh, here that these, these people, they weren't seeking righteousness, yet they obtained righteousness. And it's a righteousness that comes from faith. So it's not by works, which he's already gone into great detail. It's by faith, a trust in God. But Israel, pursuing the law for righteousness, has not achieved the righteousness of the law. So we've already gone through that discussion earlier on in chapter 4. But again, the idea is that uh, many in Israel believed because they were given the law of Moses, they were going to keep the law of Moses and in essence earn their salvation. They may not have laid it out that way, but that was the idea. Uh, And that's why he points out earlier on when you go through Romans 1 and Romans 2 and Romans 3, that not only is everyone guilty of sin, but even Israel, who's been given all these special privileges, they were given the law, they were given the prophets, all these things, they sin as well. Remember he went through that little thing, that diatribe. He says, you who say that you should not rob, do you rob temples? And he kind of goes through some specific things that the nation of Israel was guilty of, Uh, showing that they were living in unbelief they were living in unrighteousness so all he's saying here then he's just repeating that idea which again is an idea which is which is a failure which is you pursue the law for righteousness or trying to obtain righteousness you have not achieved the righteousness of the law why is that because they did not pursue it by faith but as if it were by works. Remember? And that's what, all, so that's what he's pointed out before, is the belief that you can somehow earn merit with God or credit with God, that somehow God will owe you a reward a reward because you have pursued God, you have pursued religion, you have pursued righteousness by keeping the law. He says, you, you'll, you will never get it because remember the standard is, it's not just keeping the law for a day and it's not keeping the law for a week. And it's not keeping a, the law perfect from the time you learn about the law. It's actually, you've kept the law perfectly even from the time before you knew that there was a law. It's, it's an absolute perfection. And it's a perfection that's both inward and outward. <coughs> that, that your motives are just as pure as all of your acts. And so it, it is an impossible thing. So they did not pursue the righteousness by trusting in God. They were trying to earn it on their own. And that's all that he says there with that. And, and so that's why they failed. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. So the question is, well, what do you mean they stumbled over the stumbling stone? What is that? Well, he's going to tell you. Verse 33. Look, I am putting a stone in Zion. Zion is Jerusalem. I am putting a stone in Zion to stumble over and a rock to trip over. Yet the one who believes on him will not be put to shame. So we know that the rock is a person. Because he says it's a rock to chip over, yet the one who believes on him. So him is the rock that he's talking about. This is Jesus. So Jesus is, is a stone of stumbling to the Jews. All right, And you remember that when Jesus was on earth and he was going through his ministry, uh, the Pharisees, or basically there's a bigger group than that, the leadership of Israel, they didn't like Jesus. They didn't like what he taught. All right, He was, he was not... Uh, uh you know praising them he was not he was not a pharisee like them he didn't agree with a lot of their uh interpretations of the law uh he, he didn't say anything wrong he was explaining the law of god perfectly and, and the righteousness of god but they didn't like that and so they stumbled over him And so they refused to believe in christ and to this day uh, there are jewish people who do become believers. It's still a pretty small number, and the big issue is always, who is Jesus? Because for a Jewish person to be saved, they believe that Jesus is their Savior like we do, which means that he is their Messiah, and that's a problem. Because if that's true, Jesus is their Messiah, that means the nation of Israel rejected their Messiah, which is exactly what happened. That's what the Bible explains to us. And so it's, it's a very difficult thing. It's a huge, it's a you know, it's a huge problem in the in the Jewish community, um, and there are some interesting things they do uh, to avoid that. Um, you know, they, they read through the Old Testament every year in the synagogue, uh, but there is one passage in particular that they never read publicly. It's Isaiah 53. Just, just, it's just astounding that they would just do that, but they just ignore it, um, and they and they won't read it. And if you read it. You know, if, as a believer, you're, it's, to me, it's just clear as day that it's describing Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they also have, um, I was going to go, but they, but they had at the synagogue here, uh, the one in to I, I was going to attend a seminar they had, uh, but I had some of the things I couldn't go. But they had a speaker come in, a, a Jewish man, and his specialty is training them to refute the evangelistic efforts of Christians. <laughs> so you know kind of like how you know we might do a seminar and talk about well this is what the jehovah witnesses believe and this is what's wrong with what they believe this is how it disagrees with the bible uh if they come to your house these are the main kinds of questions they ask you and uh that this is where that's coming from and this is what the bible says and we, we, we could do the same thing with what the mormons believe you know that kind of thing so they do the same thing except you have, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're the ones that they're trying to uh, train you to be able to go against are Christians. Um, and so I wanted, I desperately wanted to go. I guess I, maybe I can look it up online and find out. Maybe I can watch a YouTube thing uh, on that. Uh, but again, they, they just, they don't, they don't want to go there. Um, but there's a growing number. You know, they, they continue to, to be evangelized. There are Jewish people who do come to Christ. Um, And we are to pray for the evangelism of the Jews and and seek to reach them. Uh, But there's a day coming when all of Israel will be saved. Uh, There's lots of ways, a couple ways, that's going to happen. But we'll get into that later. So moving on, so moving on to chapter 10. um, He's going to continue to explain. Remember, he's through all of this. What Paul's always been talking about is explaining all the various nuances of salvation to make sure that individuals can understand what salvation is, how salvation is obtained, how salvation was provided for us, who salvation is for, which is, which is for everyone. But he, he's been explaining that, and he's been raising objections that people have to, that, to those statements and trying to answer them uh, throughout the book. So he says in verse 1 of chapter 10, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God concerning them is for their salvation. So them, he's talking about Israel. Just so you know, he says I can testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. All right. So he's so he's explaining his people, um, and they were religious zealots. Uh, they would they would follow their traditions and their rituals, really, no matter what it cost. Uh, shortly after. Jesus ascended to heaven. So, remember Jesus uh, died in Jerusalem, and then he was buried in, in, in uh, the tomb, uh, the rich man's tomb. And then three days later, he rose again. He was on the earth for 40 days, and then he ascended. So, shortly after that time, I'm not sure how many years went by, not a whole lot of years. But, but uh, I thought that was my phone. It's like, oh. But um, (laughs) that's that's, that's happened once before, but my phone is on silent. But anyway, so what happened was, is there was a, a decision. Rome made a decision to allow the shields of Rome to be placed up on the wall of Jerusalem. And the problem with that is that was either in some places above or equal with the height of the temple and the Jews went berserk. Now, the Jews don't have an army. They don't remember, Romans, an occupying military. The Jews don't have an army. They don't have, a, they don't have anything, and they are upset, and so they demonstrate. They basically have a demonstration, and several thousand of the richest, most prominent Jewish people come out for this demonstration. And the Romans slaughter them. Three thousand of them died uh, on this place. It's called, I think, it's called the pavement. Um, but they knew their lives were in danger. But that just reveals they, there was this zealousness they had for the temple. This zealousness they had for their religion. Um, through the years, in every place where the Jews have been sent, because if you read about their history, uh, it's it's a very uh, They've been, they, they have been uh, um, discriminated against in just about every single country they've ever been in for hundreds of years. And they always stick together. And their communities are always, uh, at least for the most part, that they're religious. You know, they get, they, they get a synagogue. And, they get, and, they, and that's what it's built on. And so it's built around the feast that they have. That, you know, where they, they can't always go to Jerusalem, but it's around the feast and they celebrate um, and, they, and, they, and they, they do that. And, of course, now we know that there's at least three. You know, there's the, the Orthodox and the Conservative and the Reform, and some of those are a little bit more liberal than the others. Uh, but especially in the past, they, they was, the zealousness for their religion has just it's been overwhelming uh, and irritating the people. In fact, it was, it was so much so that, um, remember that Paul talks about a real big problem that had existed between uh, that early on existed between uh, believing Gentiles and believing Jews in the church. There was a huge division. You read through Ephesians, he talks about how the death of Christ resolves all that, and there's not, there's not to be that division. Christ has abolished that division between the two. But uh, in the temple, uh, even, those, even even um, Gentile men who converted to Judaism were allowed only to go, I think, into only the outer court, but they couldn't go further into the temple, no matter what. Just, they, they weren't allowed. And then there was the general attitude that um, the Jewish people had towards Gentiles, and that was basically they're all dogs. So that doesn't really endear you to people when, when they know that you think they're a dog. Um, and so, you know, there's been this issue for years with them, but there's this great zealousness. And so what Paul says is, yeah, that's there, but it's not according to knowledge. And, and of course, that's, that's the big thing. You know, it's not a according to the knowledge of God, basically. Um, so he says, um, verse three, "cause they disregarded the righteousness from God and attempted to establish their own righteousness, they have not submitted themselves to God's righteousness." So is this another way to explain that they were trying to earn their salvation? When it says there that they, um, they disregard the righteousness from God and attempted to establish their own righteousness, Remember, we've, uh, if you've listened to me go through any of the Gospels before, sometimes we'll talk about the Mishnah or we'll talk about the fence laws. So when you read in the Gospels and it talks about, like Jesus will say, uh, you have heard it said, normally he's referring either to a uh, loose interpretation of the Bible or he's talking about one of their, one of their fence laws. Um, and what a fence law was is what the, what the Jewish people did, especially the leaders, is they took the law of Moses, which are 6 of the 13 laws, and then their goal was, was, was to, what, they, they asked themselves, what can we do to prevent the people of Israel from breaking the law of Moses? Because that's the worst thing you can do. And so the idea was, we will make a fence of rules and laws, and we'll build that fence around the law of Moses. And if you break those, that's bad but it's not as bad as breaking the law of Moses. And when you break one of those rules or laws, then that stops you. You know, you're on, you're on this path to break the law of Moses, so you break this fence law, you get in trouble, and it stops you, and so we've done our duty. We've stopped you from breaking the law of Moses. Well, eventually, that, the fence laws they made, they, they kept growing in number, and then eventually, they equated the fence laws with the law of Moses. And to break the one was to break the other. And they were establishing their own righteousness, and they became very legalistic. Um, And then there were a couple of examples that Jesus pointed out to the Pharisees, how they did that. Uh, There was, uh, when he talked about them, like, for example, uh, on the Sabbath day, which the command of God was, they were not to work. That's about it. The Jews added 1,500 laws to keeping the Sabbath day holy. And one of those, or some of those laws, they talk about how far you can travel. Like, if you, like so um, if, you, uh, if, if you travel more than a certain distance from your home, it now becomes work. So, and they measured all these things, so that's why certain people wanted to live within a certain proximity, like for example, to the, to the synagogue. Because then you, you could, if you're Orthodox, you can't drive because that's working. You have to walk, but it can't be too far because that would be work as well. So the Pharisees and the Sadducees, a lot of them had a lot, all kinds of businesses going, business ventures all over the place. And they would travel on the Sabbath day and go as far as they want. But they, were, but they, but they would explain that they were never guilty of breaking the law because what they would do, and they got to this out of their discussions, they would bring some things from their house. Uh, not much, but maybe, maybe their blanket, a, pot, a cooking pot, whatever it happens to be. And so when they, would, when they would settle down for the night, they would literally stand and say, these are my possessions, this is my home. So if you could only travel so far from, from your home, your home's always moving. So you'd never break the law. And so in their mind, they were remaining righteous because they never traveled more than the uh, required number of steps from their home. And that's how they did that. Uh, and Christ called them out on that and several other things that they did. So they, were, so they were very legalistic, yet breaking the law. They were unrighteous all the while they were trying to establish their own kinds of righteousness. And so it was just filled with holes. And, and of course, Paul was very familiar with that. I remember, Paul was a Pharisee. Um, before he became a believer. And he was also a special class. Um, That special class was he he would have been called basically a trailblazer. Um, And what that meant, among other things, is that most likely Paul was part of the group of Pharisees, because Pharisees are like religious lawyers. Paul was part of, of the Pharisees that continued to look at the Mishnah or the fence laws and make more. So he knew him. You know, Paul had most of the Old Testament, and maybe all of it, but he had at least most of it memorized. That was required. He had it memorized. And then he would have had most of those those offense laws, even though there were hundreds and hundreds and thousands of them, he would have had them memorized. So he was in that group, you know, that would even create more to make sure the individuals weren't breaking the law of Moses. So he knows what he's talking about when he says these things. And so the Jewish people reading this were very clear on what he was um, trying to establish. So again, they disregard the righteousness from God and attempted to establish their own righteousness. They have not submitted themselves to God's righteousness. So one more thing about that, people do the same thing today, whether they're, they're Jewish or Gentile. People today, there are those who believe that, well, I, they don't always say it this way, but this is what the intent is. The idea is, is that me and God have an understanding. I'm not sure what all that means, but in their mind, me and God have an understanding. I don't, I don't have to go to church, and I don't have to read the Bible. Um, what they're communicating is, is, is whatever standard there, there is in their mind, they are good enough. God will accept me. God knows my heart. So what are you saying? Well, what they're communicating is that in their heart, they're pretty pure. I guess, or they have at least good intentions. And so what are they trying to do? They're trying to establish their own righteousness and all the while ignoring what? The righteousness of God. Mm-hmm. Because you, when you talk to individuals about, you know, when, when we come to Christ, what we all normally do the same kind of thing. We admit that we're sinners, that we've broken the love of God, that we're separated from God, that we are in need of salvation, that we, we, we can't make our way to God. That's that an impossibility. So I need him to save me. I need his righteousness to be placed on my account because I don't have any righteousness to bring. I can't establish my own righteousness because to God, my righteousness is what? Filthy rags. And so I need that. So so this is not a thing that that only applies to the Jewish people that, that Paul is writing about. This is true for everybody. Everyone who rejects Christianity, in the end, that's really what they're doing, is they're trying to establish uh, their own righteousness. They, they may not have thought it out. You know, they don't have it written down. Uh, most people don't. But in their mind, in and I guess in some magical way, they wouldn't say it this way. And I wouldn't say that to them because I, I, I don't really want to mock them. But in essence, they believe in some magical way they're going to make it. In the end, they think somehow their good is going to outweigh their bad. Now, even that whole concept is based on establishing your own kind of righteousness and believing you can earn your salvation because that that's not in the bible anywhere that concept doesn't even come from the bible all right it comes from satan but that's the idea um, that's there and so paul has been trying in every way possible to refute that idea and to show that 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 is not going to bring about salvation or what people would like which is to go to heaven so verse 5 he continues for moses writes about the righteousness That is from the law. The one who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that comes from faith speaks like this. Do not say in your heart, who will go up to heaven? That is to bring Christ down, or who will go down into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. On the contrary, what does it say? The message is near you, in your mouth, in your heart. This is the message of faith that we proclaim. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that god raised him from the dead you will be saved so let me explain to you just briefly the word confess in verse 9. so what's important to remember is that when it says that we are to confess this this doesn't mean that all someone has to do is just repeat the words okay there's actually a movement uh within christianity where there are those who teach that um and I've read st- stories of individuals who uh, have even gone on the mission field, and let's say that you you go to Venezuela, and you get a you get a group of and you let's say you speak a little bit of Spanish. So you get a group of people together, and you tell them just to repeat what you say. So you just say that verse nine, and those people they they re- they repeat it. They have no idea what what it means, and then the missionary says, you're all saved. Now, I know that may sound ridiculous, but that's actually happening. It actually happens. So what's important with the word confess is it still means to speak, but the idea with the word confess is really simply that the individual speaks from a deep sense of conviction. Now, when I say that, I'm not saying that the individual says that from a deep sense where they they really mean it. Okay, we're not talking about being sentimental, and you really mean it, it's a sense of conviction. Conviction is, is that you would say that you believe and know this to be true. So you are basing your faith on the truth of the gospel, that the gospel is true, that what Christ has done is true. Um, And I'm I'm trusting in that. So we do confess with our mouth, absolutely, but it's not just repeating words. I guess the way we would say it is that we are saying it from our hearts. That, that we truly believe, you know, I use the word truly a lot when it comes to this kind of thing. That I truly believe. Why? Right? Because there are those who can say they believe it, but it's just uh, an acknowledgement, uh, an intellectual acknowledgement of certain truths. They've not placed their faith in it. Um, faith, it's a difficult word really in a sense because it, it, it's like it's a verb. It requires action. Uh, the individual Um, I guess the way that that you could illustrate it would be if I take you to the airport and and let's say you're gonna you're gonna fly to Hawaii so so I have a I have a ticket for you to Hawaii and so I take you to the airport and so we're both standing in the airport and I show you the plane that's gonna take you there and I give you the ticket and I say do you believe that plane can take you to Hawaii you go, well, absolutely. Are you going to get to Hawaii? No, because you have to do something. All right now, you're not, you're not going to flap your wings and get there. That's not going to happen. You just got to get on the plane and sit down, especially nowadays, with a mask. <laughs> yeah, <he does. laughs> right. but, but the idea is, is that you, when you get on that plane and they shut that door, I guess whether you want to or not you have just put all of your faith in that plane right and in that it pilot. Be down. Right because that plane goes down guess who else is going down you with you are so right. so you so basically you you have acted on your statement you are you are showing that you that you trust that you absolutely believe that plane is going to get you there so it's the same idea with Christ is that it's not just an intellectual acknowledgment that Jesus lived And that he died, but you believe that he died for sin. He died for your sin. And so you are confessing with your mouth from a deep sense of conviction uh, that you are a sinner in need of salvation and you believe what Christ has done. And so that is the message of faith. Um, So again, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, meaning Jesus is God, and believe in your heart that God raised from the dead, you will be saved. One believes with the heart. Resulting in righteousness, the one confesses with the mouth, resulting in salvation. So he's just repeating himself there. The idea is, is that um, we, we believe in the gospel and we have the righteousness of Christ and we have salvation. Now the scripture says, everyone who believes on him will not be put to shame. So the meaning of that phrase there, will not be put to shame, would be like this. So if I am, so, so let's say that uh, uh, I make an agreement Let's say I make an agreement with, with the church. I'm going to, the church is going to send me on a, on a missions trip. And let's just say that, that um, uh, it's, it's me and one other person, and we're being sent to, let's just say, we're, we're going to South Africa. And South Africa can be, very, it can be a very dangerous place because of all the things going on there politically. But I go there, and in the agreement is, is that if they don't hear from me after a certain number of days... They're going to send someone to come and rescue me. Okay? And we have it all worked out where I'm going to be and my buddy. (laughs) And they're going to make sure we get picked up. So I go there. I'm doing all these things. And sure enough, bad things begin to happen. And no one hears from me. And so we're now on this plan. And all of my trust and faith, is that the church is gonna follow through and make sure that this helicopter that's gonna take me to the plane <laughs> is gonna show up. And so I'm, I'm, wherever I'm supposed to be, I'm there, whether I'm hiding in the woods or hiding in a building, waiting for this helicopter, all of my hope is in that. And let's say that the, that the bad guys find out where I am, and so they're yelling at me uh, to go, oh, come on out. They're not gonna come. They're not going to show up. You know, it's, it's over. You might as well give yourself up. And they know that I put all of my hope in this helicopter showing up. If the helicopter doesn't show up, I'm embarrassed. I look like what? A fool. Because all of my trust was placed in this event happening, and it didn't happen. So when it comes to salvation, we're putting all of our trust... In Jesus to rescue us from judgment and from hell. So, when death comes or the Lord comes, that is where all non believers are going. All of my hope is in Jesus rescuing me from this because I already know I don't have any righteousness of my own and I wasn't trying to produce any righteousness of my own. And if I'm not delivered, I am, in essence, put to shame. And what he's promising is that it'll never happen. I am I have been rescued. I have nothing to fear. In essence, that helicopter is going to show up. And when it shows up, it what it reveals is that I've put my faith in the right one. You know, in this in that case, the right people, in this case, in the right person, which is Jesus Christ. That's the idea that you would never be put to shame, uh, is what he's trying to get at there with that phrasing so then he says in verse 12 he says for there is no distinction between jew and greek since the same lord of all is rich to all who call on him for everyone who calls on the name of the lord will be saved so he's also been explaining that throughout the entire letter as well that there are these differences between jews and gentiles he goes all the way back to to chapter one you know because when he talks about that there is no one who uh, everyone born has no excuse In the chapter 2, he starts starts talking about how the Jewish person has no excuse either. They're just as, as much in need of salvation as the Gentiles. And God is the God of all. He is the God of both the Jew and the Gentile. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the God of all men. He is the only God, the one true God, and he is the one who saves both. The same God who saves the Jewish person, saves the Gentile. The same God who saves the Gentile, saves the Jewish person. And so, Paul... Who was a Jewish man who's been sent by God primarily to the Gentiles. It doesn't mean he only speaks to Gentiles, but he was called the Apostle to the Gentiles because that was his main audience. That was his main group. You know, he did go in the synagogues at times and he would uh, speak there and seek to reach the Jews for the Lord, but that was not his main audience. His main audience was, was the Gentiles. And so here's this Jewish rabbi basically explaining that God is going to save all. Uh, And so it doesn't matter. Now, sometimes people will will try to paraphrase this to make it more, uh, I guess, relatable to us today. And so this is where we have to be careful because we have to make sure we understand distinctions. So they will say, well, God will save the Gentile and the Jew and the Muslim and the Buddhist. That's true. He will do that. But when God saves the Muslim and the Jew and the Buddhist, He doesn't save them as that. They don't remain that. Okay, so it's not because some people. What happens is some people begin to say that that, um, uh, and some Christians have said this in error. God has His people everywhere. Some Muslim, some Buddhist. That's untrue. Buddhist Muslims or whoever can get saved but when they become believers in Jesus Christ, they're no longer Muslim. Muslim's not a race, it's a religion, it's Islam. Okay, Islam does not teach the same thing the Bible does. There's contradictions all the way down the line. So some individuals make that mistake and they didn't intend to, but that still needs to be corrected. But there's other individuals who are, that's where the word ecumenical comes in, it's used in a lot of different ways, but the main idea is that we want to erase some of these distinctions and just say, hey, God saves all of his people, and so that includes the Muslim and the Buddhist. And So again, that's a yes and a no. Yes, anyone who comes to Christ will be saved, even the Muslim, even the Buddhist. But when they come to Christ, they're no longer a Muslim and no longer a Buddhist. Because, and if you talk to a Muslim that gets saved, they get saved, even they will tell you that. Um, that they don't, uh, they're, not, they're no longer following Allah. They may use the name Allah for God, but they're no longer following Islam. So I make sure that we, we recognize that distinction because there's, because there's been a push for hundreds of years and that push will continue to be uh, to where we want to be all-inclusive. God is all-inclusive. Okay? He will save all who come to Him. But it's everyone who comes to God on His terms. We don't come to God on our terms. You know, no one says, well, God, I'll believe in you, but I'm remaining a Muslim. But you you, you can't be saved. You know, it's like the individual who says, now, I, you know, I, I know I'm committing adultery. I'm, I'll, I'll become a Christian, but I'm not stopping that. It's kind of bizarre. Uh, We don't, we don't, we don't set the, the standards for what salvation is or what's acceptable. We come to God on his terms. And so, and so we are adopting what he says to be true uh, and all of that. So, that's, so we want to make sure that we keep that distinction uh, because that push continues even to this day to eliminate that. And, and if you want to see it in action, just watch. I don't know. I, I don't know if she's, does Oprah Winfrey still have a show? Does she still do that? <laughs> no. Okay. Well, if you watch her old shows, she does that a lot. She's not the only one. There's others. Um, they can be very kind. And I guess in a lot of ways they might mean well. Uh, to a degree, um, normally though, when they meet someone who stands firm on the Bible, they get pretty mad at them, and they don't like them, because it's absolutes. And that is the drive behind those who want to get rid of absolutes, is it's to get rid of the absolutes that, the, that Christians hold to, uh, that there's one way. Remember that when Jesus said, he was the way, the truth, and life, and no man comes to the Father but by him, that the Greek language is more emphatic. Okay, and basically the way that you would read that is Jesus said, I am the only way. And I am the only door. So that does mean everyone else is wrong. We never say that out of arrogance. all right? Because we had to believe that as well. But that is the truth. There's only one way uh, to God, which is through Jesus Christ. Um, and uh, that's what's required for salvation. So it's not that we believe Christ, among other things. It's an exclusive kind of a thing. So we'll stop there. Um, and again, if you now, if, if you have any questions, or maybe let's say that you think of questions later, you can write them down and you can ask them when we gather together next week. Questions are okay. Like I said, I know sometimes I can start talking and I start talking really, really fast and you don't think that you can interrupt. And you can interrupt. Just raise your hand. And I'll just stop. And uh, <laughs> we'll answer the question and then we'll go on. So... Uh, because the most important thing is to understand, and if, and I know sometimes our brains start running with things, and like, ooh, what about this? What about that? Write it down real quick so you don't forget, and then ask them, and uh, we will uh, do our best to answer them. I don't have a book next week, no. <laughs> <laughs> you can come with a book if you want. <laughs> All right, let's uh, let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your kindness and grace and love. We thank you, Lord, again for the writing of Paul and as he continues to seek to answer questions concerning salvation and to make it clear to us uh, that you are really good and gracious and wonderful in every way. We thank you, Father, for our salvation. We do pray, Father, that perhaps there might be some here tonight who are either still considering Christ, uh, some who may be unsure, others who are sure they're not believers and um, are just thinking about these things. I pray, Lord, that you will reveal yourself to them that they would go back to the scripture and they would read the scripture and see what you say. Uh, And I ask, Lord, that you would work on their heart and reveal to them the truth of who you are. We pray, Lord, that you would give to us a greater confidence in you, because we know, Lord, that our salvation has been secured by Christ and cannot be undone by any man. We ask that you keep us safe tonight, Uh, cause us, Lord, to think often about you, and to seek to live in obedience to your will. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.